From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, December 18th. I'm Marco Werman. More funerals today and more soul-searching in the wake of Friday's killings in Newtown, Connecticut. We hear how communities in Finland and Scotland have coped in the aftermath of school shootings of their own. You can't deny that it happened, but hopefully it does not become your defining characteristic. And later, we remember the long and storied career of Hawaii's Daniel Inouye, plus how free trade has impacted two car-making towns in Michigan and Mexico. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. Hi, Marco Werman. This is The World. Today, there were more funerals for some of the 21st graders in Newtown, Connecticut, who were gunned down at their school on Friday. In Newtown and in nearby communities, residents have also responded with an outpouring of solidarity. There have been numerous candlelight vigils and several memorial funds have been set up to help the families of victims with funerals and other expenses. These responses aren't unusual after such extreme acts of violence. We've seen that before here in the U.S., in Aurora, Colorado, at Virginia Tech, and at Columbine. It's also how communities around the globe respond to violence, regardless of country or culture. Jim Hawden is a professor of sociology at Virginia Tech, and he's compared responses to mass shootings here in the U.S. and in Finland. So you'll tell us which events you study in a moment, uh, Jim. But the first, the headline, how much did the two countries compare in their reactions? In terms of the initial reaction, they were very similar. The outpouring of, of grief, the coming together, the holding of candlelight vigils, the building of of spontaneous shrines of letters to the victims and uh this was similar at Virginia Tech as well as in Yokola and Kaioki Finland so those were the shootings you studied uh, Virginia Tech were you there for that for the yes, shooting I was yes yeah so digging a bit more to the similar reactions, we're talking a university in Finland in 2008, a school in Finland in 2007, and then the Omaha Mall shooting uh, and the Virginia Tech shooting. The communities in Finland and the U.S., what did they actually do that resulted kind of in that coming together, in that solidarity? Really, it's mostly about just people coming out in the street, like in Virginia Tech, we were in lockdown for for several hours after the event. Within hours of removing that lockdown, there were people had left flowers outside of the building and uh, what is now the permanent memorial on our drill field. The students had found hokey stone, which is locally quarried rock that most of our buildings on campus are made of, and they put a ring of 32 stones out on the drill field. Uh, and similarly in, in Yokola, there is a pond right out in front of the school where the shooting occurred. And that first night, uh, students and community members gathered there and lit candles and left mementos to the victims. And in all of these cases, there was also coordinated efforts that, that Virginia Tech, there was a 
a, the university held a convocation the following day in a candlelight vigil. You know, as a member of the community, of the traumatized community, it was, it was comforting to me to know that my community was coming together. It sounds like that newfound solidarity uh, helped in the overall healing. Did you find that to be the case in uh, Virginia Tech and in Ooh. Finland? We did. We have data that tracked levels of solidarity and looked at well-being, emotional well-being. In all of these cases, there's a clear pattern where people who felt as they were part of the community, felt they belonged to the community, all expressed less depressive symptoms, uh, higher levels of of well-being, and lower levels of fear. Right. I gather, uh, Professor Hawden, that you also discovered kind of a dark side to, to that solidarity. There certainly can be. As groups become tighter, there's a tendency for them to define membership uh, more and more rigidly. My colleagues in Finland saw that, especially in Jokola, where solidarity emerged, it really emerged among the youth so the children really bonded together. The young people really bonded together, but kind of shut out their parents to some extent. Um, well, take, and, a, take what you learned from Yokola and look at the long term. I mean, did the community solidarity that was generated from the shootings there, uh, did they last? Uh, I mean, what might Newtown be experiencing in, say, five years based on what you learned in Yokola? Most of the the evidence that we we have shows that it it starts to return to normal levels, pre-tragedy levels around the six-month mark. But even data that I looked at here, the levels of express solidarity are still a little bit higher now than they were in 2006 uh, prior to the tragedy. And I think that solidarity can remain for some time and towns can feel uh, more cohesive than prior to the tragedy. Um, Of course, part of that comes from what can be considered a negative side in that um, the places become known for the tragedy. People talk about Columbine, they know exactly where you're talking about. Same with uh, Yokola. Finland. It's a it's a small community outside of Helsinki. You know, no one really have, would have ever heard of it, um, and so that becomes unfortunate uh, that that's what places become known for. But this also serves as a as a a, a source of solidarity of uh, community members in Columbine. I think say say it very eloquently. The the shooting is our part of our history. It is not our legacy. Jim Hawden, a sociology professor at Virginia Tech. Thank you. My pleasure. The shooting in Newtown has revived memories in Britain of that nation's worst mass shooting. It happened at an elementary school in Dunblane, Scotland, in March of 1996. A 43-year-old gunman, armed with four legally registered handguns, shot to death 16 kindergarten-age children and their teacher, wounding several others before taking his own life. Philip Dutton is a clinical psychologist, and he worked with the young survivors of the Dunblane shootings. Uh, Philip Dutton, what did your experience working with these child survivors teach you about treating trauma? They taught me a lot, and they taught me a lot about the individual's resilience and the importance of the stability in the family before you go on for treatment. Just so many things. And given this was your first time working in this kind of traumatic situation, a a mass shooting, and there wasn't a lot of uh, literature to base 
your actions on what did you do? Where did you turn first? Uh, well, interestingly, we were offered from the USA new treatments. So I'm uh, grateful to many American colleagues and happy to return the favor. And what, what, what was that treatment? Give us details. I mean, how does it work? Naturally, after a trauma, we want to avoid all thought about uh, the trauma and any triggers or anything related to it uh, because it's such a horrible, overwhelming feeling that comes about you. But we have to learn to allow our bodies to deal with it. So the very first thing is we make them feel very, very safe. Uh, and it's a skill in itself to just allow that safety and then allow the neurobiology to almost heal itself. Um, and, and the first first point is allow get the parents to be uh, stable with the children and consistent because unpredictability is the greatest fear, uncertainty of any child. So they've just had a huge unpredictability, watch the friends die, and it's they need their life stabilized again. So very simple things like bed on time, eating on time, parents being there for them, not allowing them too much, you know, extras, just keeping everything stable. And they feel really secure if the parent's okay. A bit like on an airline, uh, you know, you put your own oxygen mask on first. Sometimes some children don't need treatment if the families can become stable enough with the help of the family, friends, community. Some people don't need treatment. I'm just curious, why did that treatment come from the United States? I think it was chance. Um... We were having troubles in Northern Ireland at the time, and there were trainings over there to do with trauma. So we had experience uh, over in Ireland, um, and we needed serious trauma assistance there. So Dunblane almost fell on the back of that, if you know what I mean. Uh, We were lucky enough to have the timing for us as therapists to have the treatment available. Mm. Um, It could have been we didn't get that at the time. I I think we were very lucky. That was Philip Dutton, a clinical psychologist who worked with child survivors of the Dunblane shootings. Britain enacted some of the toughest gun control laws in the world after Dunblane, but it's a different situation in the rest of Europe. For one thing, hunting is still a popular European pastime, and the hunting lobby has helped frame gun laws across much of the continent. The European Federation for Hunting and Conservation represents 7 million hunters in 37 European nations. Manuel Esparago is the Federation's firearms expert. He's in Brussels. And he says there are limits to what guns can be used by hunters, but they vary across Europe. It varies considerably from one country to another. Um, I think it's important to understand that at European Union level, which is similar to the federal level in the U.S., there is a directive on the control of the acquisition and possession of firearms. And the EU countries are required to implement at least the requirements laid down in that European directive. But they can also introduce more um, stringent legislation. Right. So that European directive, what kind of background checks does it mandate? And how often do hunters need to renew their licenses, for example? Uh, It depends on the type of firearms. There is, first of all, a category uh, which is prohibited, which is basically uh, automatic firearms. Uh, Then there is another category which mainly uh, includes handguns and semi-automatic rifles and shotguns capable of holding more than two rounds that are subject to an authorization or permit. And then you have the other firearms, uh, mainly hunting, uh, well, not not just hunting, but rifles and shotguns that uh, are non-semi-automatic, holding more than two rounds. And those firearms are subject to declaration or registration. Right. So Uh, let me just pick up on that last point. How much ammunition can you carry when you're hunting? 
Uh, well, there is no EU regulation on the amount of ammunition that a hunter can, can carry, but uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, there isn't any restriction. Um, so you can hunt basically with the amount of ammunition that you, you may need. Right. Okay. So automatic, as you said, are off the table. You can't hunt with automatic guns, but everything else is allowed? Uh, again, it depends on the jurisdiction, but I would say in the majority of the of the EU countries, it's not possible to hunt with semi-automatic rifles holding more than two rounds of ammunition. But uh, it's not always the case. It depends on the species. Actually, the main reason for this is that using semi-automatic rifles holding more than three rounds, two in a magazine and one in the chamber, uh, actually would result in killing two too many animals. And that's why for certain species, uh, the use of those firearms is not permitted. But uh, sometimes it is permitted for other species which are not in danger and that actually cause uh, damages uh, like it's the case of uh, wild boars. I mean, maybe it's just my kind of stereotyping, but I think of Europe as being, you know, the challenge of the hunt and nothing too complicated. So do you know of hunters uh, in Europe who actually like semi-automatic weapons for, for hunting? Uh, I think it's becoming more and more popular, yes. Basically, in every European country, except in Britain, the use of semi-automatic rifles with the limitation that I just mentioned is, is legal for hunting, especially for driven hunts, where uh, actually hunters have to, to shoot at maybe at the same animal uh, very quickly. So, yes, it is the case. Bolt action rifles are still the most popular ones, I would say, for for big game hunting and double barrel shotguns for a small game. But um, no, semi-automatic rifles and shotguns are are used, yes. There haven't been as many of these massacres in schools in Europe as there have been here in the States. But I'm just wondering, since you kind of oversee these firearms issues for the Federation of Hunting and Conservation, um, do you think that there are concerns in Europe about where these guns go? And does that worry you? It is. Uh, we are fully aware that this, it is a controversial issue. But um, I think it's also important to understand that for many European hunters, a firearm is, is a tool, and we don't really see uh, any any problem with the legal ownership of hunting firearms, provided that uh, there is sufficient control. And we, we strongly believe that that's already the case. Manuel Esparago, he's the firearms expert with the European Federation for Hunting and Conservation, speaking with us from Brussels. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Still to come on the program, put the kettle on, we'll all have tea on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to healthcare through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at medtronicfoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Daniel Inoue was born in 1924 to Japanese immigrants in Hawaii, way before Hawaii was a state. He died yesterday at the age of 88, the highest-ranking Asian-American in the U.S. Senate. Today, we remember Senator Inouye's remarkable life story, a story that parallels the history of his state. Dan Boylan is a longtime political reporter and commentator in Hawaii. So he went on to serve in World War II, a highly decorated veteran. And I knew that the senator had lost his arm in combat during World War II. But I was reading the story this morning of how that happened. It was like a scene out of Saving Private Ryan. He was unflappable. Can you tell us that story? Japanese-American soldiers of the 442nd and the 100th Battalion were uh, sent into Italy. Inoue's outfit was in the Po Valley, and they were heading up a hill, and there was uh, Germans at the top. 442 guys were trying to prove something, namely that they were good Americans. A lot of people questioned that going into the war. Japanese on the West Coast were interned. 
Uh, some people from Hawaii were also interned, but, you know, they had to prove their Americanism, and they were brothers, and they were going to go up that hill. And Owe got halfway up, and a uh, grenade took his arm off, uh, and he just grabbed a grenade, kept on going, and, and took out the Germans at the top of the hill. And the 442 came out of the war, the most decorated unit of its size in the United States Army, the most decorated. They had no quit in them. Uh, they saved the Texas Battalion when they were surrounded and, and brought them out. They just would not quit. And it all had to do with that desire for equality, that desire to prove who they were, that they were. Uh, they had attended American public schools where, as Inouye pointed out, a teacher from the mainland, a Mrs. King, made him memorize the first words of the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. And in a way, he internalized that for the rest of his life and became a great champion of Indians, of Hawaiians, uh, always a great friend of Israel, any group that was discriminated against. Uh, of course, Americans during World War II had a completely different view of the Japanese and of Japanese Americans. How was Inoue treated when he returned home, and how did that affect him? Well, uh, not well. Wearing a captain's uniform, he walked into a barber shop in San Francisco, and they would not cut his hair on his way home. They would not cut his hair. I don't think mainland Americans can quite understand what that was like for these guys. When he returned home from World War II, Hawaii was still a territory. It wasn't yet a state. Tell us about Inouye's role in getting Hawaii accepted into statehood. Well, becoming a state meant first-class citizenship. So that became symbolic of what equality was. Uh, and, of course, the, many argued against it on the mainland, saying, well, these guys are, you know, they can't be Americans, they're Asians, they can't adopt to American ways. And <laughs> in no way famously said, look, he raised his prosthetic arm and he said, I, I gave up this arm to fight fascism and I'll, I'll give up my life to fight communism, too. You sound emotional talking about Daniel Inouye. He meant a lot to you, didn't he? I think he meant a lot to anybody who knows Hawaii's story in this last half of the 20th century. Hawaii really is the cusp of modern America, though nobody's paid much attention until a fellow who was born here uh, was elected president. We transcended ethnicity in a big way, and Dan Inouye was almost symbolic of the generation which made that possible. Yeah, I'm emotional about him, but a lot of people are. This is not just a Hawaii hero and a great Hawaii politician. He's a great world politician if you think about the idea that people of different ethnicities must live together in equality. Uh, if that's an American message, it's a message that men like Dan Inouye went a long way to spread. Longtime political reporter and commentator in Hawaii, Dan Boylan, thank you very much for your thoughts. Thank you. Take care. Here's a story now from the world's Alex Galifant. Each year, dozens of Quebecois make the trip south from Canada to New York City to sell Christmas trees. Alex just met a young couple from Montreal in New York who are selling trees to fund their travels around the world. Gabrielle's got a beard. Caroline's got silver studs in her cheeks. And they're in love. The two are both 20 years old. Born on May 7th. Yeah. Same day, same hospital. Gabrielle and Caroline are from Montreal, although they finally met in British Columbia, picking cherries in the same orchard. That's the shape of their life right now, traveling the world, picking up informal work along the way. I pick grapes also in the, the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. 
<laughs> yeah, I worked in a dairy farm in New Zealand too for two weeks or something like this. Yeah. And so now they're here in New York selling Christmas trees on the street. Now, normally you need a permit to set up shop on a sidewalk, but thanks to a 1938 city provision, the so-called coniferous tree exception, you can in December, so long as you've got permission from the owners fronting the sidewalk and you leave space for pedestrians. Gabriel and Caroline have been selling trees for two weeks now. They won't stop until December 24th. We've been told that Americans don't really like the conditions of this job, so people from Quebec come to to sell trees to Americans. Do you own these trees? Who owns the trees? Um, our boss uh, owns it. They come from uh, big trucks from south of Quebec, and yeah, we don't we don't own them. We're just selling them. <laughs> and so, you are you paid on commission? Do you have a salary? How does it work from your end? Uh, we're paid at the end, actually. The twenty fourth, we get our money, and the rest of the time, we that's yeah, from the delivery. We have tip, but otherwise, we're not paid yeah. till the twenty fourth. They're not even sure what they'll get in the end. Around two thousand dollars each, they hope. And it's cash under the table. Even though the selling of trees is legal, they're not. They don't have work authorization here in the U.S., so they're trusting their boss, who is also from Quebec. That's it. <laughs> Where do you guys stay? Is it like 24 hours a day? You sleep in the car. What, yeah. What's the what's the situation like? Tell me. Yeah, we're only two, so we have to like always keep an eye on the the spot, and we. We have our van, so we switch. The van is a 2003 Ford Windstar, completely covered inside and out, with messages and colorful drawings left by friends and traveling companions. We sleep there. We wake up here. We eat here. Um, we're always around. Always the sound of the city. Always the police everywhere. Ambulance and. One good thing this year, it's not been that cold, especially compared to a Montreal winter. They've got a small heater and a portable stove, and they can take shelter in a tiny wooden hut with plastic sheeting for walls, open on one side. As for the trees, they're either Fraser or balsam firs. Depends if you care more about coverage or aroma. The most expensive one they've sold so far, a nine-footer for $160. To be honest, we don't know like. We're not expert in tree sellings or stuff. We just we need to sell it. So it was a great opportunity for us. Yeah, we need to continue traveling. That's why. <laughs> Next stop, assuming they earn enough cash, Patagonia. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. Music by the great Quebecois band La Bottine Souriante. It's a favorite of Gabrielle and Caroline. You can see photos of the tree selling twenty-year-olds at theworld.org. And this is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Twenty years after NAFTA, an auto worker in Michigan finds it hard to make a middle-class living. You're supposed to save up enough money to buy a home. You have to have a way to get to work, so that means you have to have a new car, and you have to save enough money so you can educate your children if you have any children. Where's that money coming from? That story ahead on the world. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic. Demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship, 
Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This week marks the 20th anniversary of the ceremonial signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. It was a controversial trade deal from the start. Many argued NAFTA would bleed American jobs to Mexico. Others said it would create better jobs for Americans. Twenty years later, the impact NAFTA has had is still a matter of debate. Today, we consider the agreement's impact on two auto towns, one in the U.S., the other in Mexico. The world's Jason Margolis begins our coverage with the perspective of one retired auto worker in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Bob Bowen worked for the Ford Motor Company in Ypsilanti for 35 years assembling cars. He retired in 1994. Today, he lives in a modest house in the township of Ypsilanti. He collects a pension from Ford of $1,300 a month. He takes home another 1200 in Social Security. He's spending part of his retirement restoring a 1957 baby blue Ford Thunderbird. First car I bought. How old were you? 18. <laughs> I asked Bowen if a young blue-collar worker starting at Ford today could afford to buy a new car like that. Not too many, no. Bowen compares his situation as a young man to that of his oldest grandson, 27-year-old Bobby. So he's... He's worked at Ford now for about eight years, and he's worked up to a pretty good pay grade. I think he's around 17 or 18 dollars an hour. That's the same hourly wage Bowen got 20 years ago, and his grandson has no pension, less generous health care benefits, and weaker job security. Bowen doesn't see how his grandson can achieve the same middle-class lifestyle he enjoyed in Ypsilanti. You're supposed to save up enough money to buy a home. You have to have a way to get to work, so that means you have to have a new car. Uh, so that's pretty expensive. You have to have insurance. It's expensive. You have to eat every day, contrary to what some conservatives think. And you have to save enough money so you can educate your children if you have any children. Where's that money coming from? Bowen adds, forget about having enough money at the end of the month for your 401k. At least Bowen's grandson, Bobby, has a job here. Another grandson had to move to Kentucky to find work, and another one joined the military. In the late 1970s, some 20,000 people worked for Ford and General Motors in Ypsilanti. Today, only a few hundred work in the auto industry here. It's the same story in cities throughout Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana. To say the least, Ypsilanti has seen better days. Tax revenues have plummeted in the past 20 years. The city mayor says he's considering combining fire and police into one. The Parks and Recreation Department has a budget of zero dollars. It's just a web page that rarely gets updated. Downtown, Auto Row is no longer. So you take east of the river on Michigan Avenue, there used to be a row of automotive dealerships there. On the uh, north side was a Pontiac dealership, which is now a Honda dealership. And then you go uh, across the other side, there was uh, Sassy Lincoln Mercury, and then there was a Chevy dealer. There was the Dodge dealer, and then there was a Oldsmobile dealer. Well, all that's left is the Honda dealer, which tells you something, right? Like many current and former auto workers I met, Bowen blames Washington for the changes around here. Another retired auto worker I met in Ypsilanti said NAFTA was the death knell of her town, and permanent trade relations with China was the final nail in the coffin. 
At the same time, Bowen and the others understand that NAFTA was only one factor in their town's problems. Jobs were moving away from here well before NAFTA was signed, and not just to Mexico. Technology has also made it possible for car makers to hire far fewer workers. Through it all, Bowen doesn't blame the Mexican workers. He says wages are too low there, and the workers are being exploited. Nor does he blame the men who run the Detroit car companies for what happened here. They've made some mistakes in product choices, uh, but it's understandable how they made that. I'm not going to that's past history. They're a product of the environment. If General Motors or Ford or Chrysler makes a car that no one can afford, they'll go out of business. Detroit's big three are far stronger than just a few years ago. The bailout from American taxpayers helped get GM and Chrysler back on their feet. And most auto analysts agree Detroit is putting out a better product. That's welcome news for American auto workers who can earn bigger bonuses through profit sharing. Proponents of NAFTA also point out that American consumers can now purchase more affordable cars and have more variety to choose from. But people like Bob Bowen say laid-off auto workers in places like Ypsilanti can't afford them. It's almost like reading what happened after World War I where you've got a lost generation. You had so many people killed. Well, in this case, it's killed opportunities. Others I spoke with in Ypsilanti did express some reason for hope. When I visited four years ago, the main drag was almost entirely boarded up. Today, there are hip coffee shops, stores, and restaurants. Apartment lofts have opened above them. Some artists have moved to the area, and people from nearby Ann Arbor have come for cheaper real estate. Bob Bowen said the changes are just superficial. He says what would help more than anything is jobs. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Miles Esty in Silao, a city in the Mexican state of Guanajuato. This is a place that has done well in the NAFTA era. Overlooking Silao from atop a small mountain, families giggle and take pictures in front of a giant statue of Christ. It is said that this is the geographic center of Mexico, attracting pilgrims and regular tourists alike. The central location has also attracted manufacturers to this former agricultural community. From Silao, rail networks can easily ship most products north to the U.S. via Laredo or Tijuana, as well as across Mexico. Just as the NAFTA Accord was taking shape, General Motors saw potential in Silao as an alternative to the maquilas along the border, and that meant work for Pedro Martinez. Martinez worked building the GM plant in Silao in the early 1990s. He then left to work in Chicago in 1996, the year the plant opened, and two years after NAFTA came into effect. When he returned a few years later, Martinez says the region had changed completely. I changed too much in 10 years. I got a couple of my friends, my wife working in there before. He got a couple of nephews working in there too. I don't know, you got to work hard to give him making money. Pedro looked into working at GM when he returned. But the wages, he said, are far too low for the work. This, however, is precisely what attracts manufacturers. The municipality of Silao is at the core of the industrial development of the state of Guanajuato. Officials in Silao's mayor's office agree that the wages could be better. But they also say that the industry has created a huge amount of employment. And, as a result, 
Guanajuato remains among the wealthiest and safest of Mexico's 31 states. General Motors in Mexico declined several requests to comment on this story. However, local sources say the GM plant itself employs some 17,000 people. The plant assembles trucks like the Escalade, Silverado, and Avalanche, trucks that retail between $40,000 and $80,000 in the U.S. The business model here has proven successful. Other manufacturers, including Volkswagen, have followed suit, growing Silao's auto cluster. Mayor Enrique B. Solisazola says more companies arrive each month. And this, he says, is the town's future. The vision that we have is to keep encouraging car-related companies to come here because this industry has already helped Silao grow. I can't stop the arrival of new companies that keep investing and believing in Silao. On the contrary, to me it seems a benefit because we can offer the people of Silao jobs in these kinds of businesses. The reality remains that American and Canadian auto unions can't compete with the 800 peso or $60 a week entry-level wage at the plant. And with the skilled labor pool growing, the workforce in Silao becomes increasingly more attractive to foreign investors. Strangely, Silao itself does not provide the majority of the workers. At the 6 p.m. shift change, buses arrive in droves, bringing workers from smaller towns like Irapuato, Romita, and La Aldea. Many residents of Silao said they don't feel much connection to the industry. The auto worker pride of Detroit or Oshawa has not proven contagious yet. Awaiting the start of school on a bench, 20-year-old college student Daniel says the GM plant is not in his future. He plans to open a business with his brothers. Elena Serrano has a more negative view. She believes the plants discriminate against residents from Silao, preferring to use people from the smaller communities. Anyway, she says, she would much rather be talking to people and selling tamales than working 12-hour shifts at the plant. But for tens of thousands in the region, the consistent, reliable pay of the plants is attractive enough. At 5 p.m., workers from various plants start to gather on the main road intersecting the small town of La Aldea. Workers were skittish about talking to a microphone. But Javier Contreras, a 12-year GM employee waiting with two colleagues on a concrete stoop, described the job as más o menos, so-so. He was heading to a 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift. On the bus, Javier lamented the long hours, but the companies demand these long shifts to meet consumer demand for low costs in the U.S. and abroad. And with companies lining up to set up shop near Silao, this type of manufacturing job seems likely to be the future of the region. For The World, this is Miles Esty in Silao, Mexico. If you're a tea drinker, you've got a head start on today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for the name of a town in the eastern Indian state of West Bengal. This town in the foothills of the Himalayas gives its name to one of the world's most popular tea varieties. It's a tea with a distinctive flavor. It's a smooth taste. It doesn't quite fully quench you because it doesn't have that overpoweringly powerful taste of some teas. Slightly grassy. It's really a a lovely taste. Yeah, I wish I had a cup of it right now. Hang on just five seconds for the answer.
New York Times reporter Jim Yardley has written about the tea growers of this area and their efforts to protect their legendary and unique variety. Jim, where is this tea growing area? It's in an area called Darjeeling, which is in the very northern point of the state of West Bengal, really the foothills of the Himalayas. It's quite gorgeous, actually. Uh, I was there a few weeks ago, and the sky was clear, and the third highest mountain in the world, Kanchenjunya, was literally floating over the city. It's a spectacular peak. So it's a sort of an alpine region. It used to be a British hill station, and now there's a city, and it's surrounded by foothills covered with tea estates. So Darjeeling, India, is the answer to the geo-quiz. Now, some 88 million pounds of tea is sold as Darjeeling on the global market each year, Jim, and yet Darjeeling Tea Gardens in India only produce about 20 million pounds of tea. So where does all this other tea come from that passes for Darjeeling? Well, this has sort of been going on for a long time. But what's happened is Darjeeling tea is very popular globally. It's sort of a unique tasting tea. It can be very mellow and four or five times more expensive than sort of lesser Indian teas. And so what happens is uh, there was a lot of adulteration going on where importers in Europe were buying Darjeeling and then blending it with other teas and then repackaging it and marketing it as Darjeeling. Um, There were also some instances where growers in Sri Lanka or Nepal or other places were growing Darjeeling from Sri Lanka or something like that. And so what happened is the tea growers in Darjeeling sort of realized they needed to protect their product because they also realized if they could sort of cut down on the blended teas, they would control the product and the price would probably go up as well. So what they did is through the Indian Tea Board and Indian officials, they got what is called a geographic indication, which is a category that's sort of under the World Trade Organization rules and negotiations over intellectual property. It's the reason that whiskey from, you know, from Scotland is the only whiskey that can be sold as Scotch whiskey. So the Darjeeling tea growers were sort of pursuing a similar strategy. And that process took a long time. But earlier this year, the EU agreed to recognize Darjeeling tea as a geographic indication product. And over the next five years, they've agreed to phase out this blended tea. So basically five years from now, presumably in Europe, the only Darjeeling you can buy has actually been grown and produced in Darjeeling. Wow. Tell us what life is like on these tea plantations in Darjeeling, these tea gardens, as some call them. And more importantly, what's life like for the tea pickers who do all the manual labor? Well, I think tea pickers uh, in many ways have a life that hasn't changed very much over the years. And today, many of the people working on these plantations are fourth and fifth generation. They live on the tea gardens. The women, they're provided a small house, um, medical care, uh, food, and daily wage. And the women usually are the main pluckers. They go out in the foothills. And the plucking season is actually divided into four seasons. They're called flushes. But actually, much of the way tea is produced today, as I understand it, is not much different than it was 50 to 100 years ago. What's your favorite flush? They were serving me second flush, and it was quite good, I have Mm. to say. Did you manage to sit down for a proper cup of Darjeeling? And does it uh, kind of entail any special ritual? I think what I found interesting about it is I'm used to drinking tea all over India, and it's just an accepted ritual in, in Indian life. If you go visit anyone, you'll get a cup of tea. And in Darjeeling, I sat down uh, with a man named Raman uh, Datta. He was, has been in the tea business for a long time, and we were in an old hotel, and we were brought our tea on very elegant trays. And instead of it being sort of doused with sugar and with milk, as is usually the case where I go in India, there was nothing in it. We just drank it as it was, and we appreciated it. 
and uh, you, you can't let it steep for too long, as I understand it. And it, basically about three minutes or else it becomes too bitter. But every time I had it, it was perfect. Yeah, well, when the tea is as good as Darjeeling, you don't really need to do anything to it, do you? No, not at all. And that was kind of nice. New York Times reporter Jim Yardley speaking with us from New Delhi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tea pluckers and lush green tea gardens. We've got some great photos and a link to Jim Yardley's New York Times story at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. We news people like to mark important anniversaries, and this is one of those moments. Two years ago yesterday, Mohamed Bouazizi committed a personal act of protest. The young fruit seller from the Tunisian town of Sidi Bouzid set himself on fire and set off a revolution. The Arab Spring, as it came to be known, unseated a dictator in his country. The upheaval also sent leaders in Egypt and Libya packing. The reverberations are still being felt around the Middle East and by Bouazizi's family. His mother, Manubia, now lives in a Tunis suburb. She notes that some Tunisians complain about what's happened in the past two years, but she says that's not Mohammed's fault. He was just a reason that God gave. He did not do anything. It was meant to be. Muhammad was humiliated and had a difficult life. What Muhammad did was not for nothing, because one doesn't set oneself on fire for nothing. If he was not slapped in the face, if he did not cry, if he did not scream and shout, the revolution would not have been so big. But it's true, after the people shouted, took to the streets, put their lives at risk, got beaten up and wounded, nothing happened or changed. So it is understandable that people are worried and frustrated. Manubia says she's proud of what her son did, but since Bouazizi's act of defiance, his mother and the family were driven from their hometown. They were fed up with neighbors who claimed they had benefited from their son's death. She says they never got any money. What she does want on this anniversary, though, says Manubia, is for the current government to take stock of the debt it owes to people like Mohammed and the others who helped topple the former regime. Until now, I see a kind of disregard and lack of attention from the government. The government could at least have helped the mothers of the wounded of the revolution. They did not receive any financial or moral compensation. People are still waiting. We are still sad and upset about that, especially now as the anniversary of Muhammad's death is approaching. I am still saddened by his death, and he is always in my heart, and in the hearts of all the mothers and the people who made the revolution. There have been a couple revolutions of sorts in Georgia in the past few decades. In 2003, the Rose Revolution led to a raft of democratic and economic reforms. And before that, in 1991, Georgia gained independence with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But for much of the 20th century, Georgia was under Soviet rule. And a lot of Russian traditions flowed across the border, sometimes influencing, sometimes replacing Georgian traditions. Now, religious communities in Georgia are rediscovering one of those lost traditions, sacred song. Caitlin Carroll has a story. The Bold Bay Convent perches high above Signagi, a wine-growing region in eastern Georgia. The 30 nuns at Bold Bay tend their gardens and paint icons of their patron saint, Nino. They also chant. <laughs> Oh, 
these chants are centuries old, but the sound of the nuns singing them is relatively new. Abbas Theodora says for a long time, Georgian religious traditions were suppressed. So now when the nuns sing the old chants, it's like a connection to the roots of their faith. Because it was forbidden, forbidden, the faith was forbidden. We were seeking, we, we were searching. Under Soviet rules, many monasteries and convents like Bad Bay closed, and Georgian sacred chant, which had been passed down orally, was almost lost. Abbas Theodora says now that Georgian convents and monasteries have reopened, they're trying to relearn these traditional chants. It's a treasure, this old chanting. Yes, it's a treasure because it's the musical point of view and in point of view of spiritual, it's very, very important. The process of resurrecting Georgian chant took years of detective work. Very few original recordings are available. Music scholars poured over recordings like this one, made in 1903, to piece together the complex three-part harmonies. Malchaz Arkwanitze led a lot of the research into the old chants. He says the last recordings were made in 1966 by an 80-year-old master chanter who sang all three parts by himself to demonstrate how the voices work together. He was last master who was still alive. And after this work, he, he will die about uh, six months later. Arquanitze transcribed these recordings into chant books, but choirs here still struggle with the dissonant sounds. So Arquanitze and another music scholar opened the country's first chant school in Tbilisi. He hopes the students will spread these chants throughout the country. Chan student Giga Jalagonia travels five hours on weekends to teach a choir in Martvili. On the way, Jalagonia sings the first chant he learned with our translator, John Graham, who also sings in a choir here. Jalagonia says when he first learned this chant as a teenager, he would sing it again and again. He says it's now, it's become a debt that we've studied, and it's now important for us to teach the next generation. Jalagonia teaches a mostly boys' choir at the Martvili Monastery. As he walks up to the church, the boys flock around him, eager for their lesson. The chants may be centuries old, but even among the youngest generation of Georgians, they definitely strike a chord. For The World, I'm Caitlin Carroll, Martvili, Georgia. Caitlin Carroll's report was supported by a 2012 Knight Lose Fellowship for reporting on global religion. You can see scenes from this renewed tradition. We have a slideshow from Georgia at theworld.org. From the Nana Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. And the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.